Kyle, how's it going? Love the show. Your guests always inspire me, like Virgil Smith. He got me out in the garden this year. Rob Machado has me thinking about ways I can bring water quality consciousness to the public. Um, I'm a ranger up on the Mississippi River in Minnesota, and so I that's my boss, fresh water and keeping water clean is my, my goal, and I do education for kids. Um, so I appreciate the work you're doing. Keep up the good work. If you're ever up in Minnesota, man, hit me up. We'll go paddling on the big money. Peace out. That was a message from one of our listeners. If you want to send a quick voice memo in, you can do it by clicking the Voice Memos app on your phone. Record 30 seconds to a minute of audio. Let me know who you are, where you're listening from, what it looks, smells, and feels like where you are in this moment right now. And you can email it to info at kyle.surf. I would love to play it. That's info at kyle.surf. Thank you so much to Jeffrey for donating to the podcast on Patreon this week. High five, Jeffrey. It is people like you who keep this show ad-free. Uh, for anyone who wants to donate, you can click the link below this episode where I wrote, buy me a cup of coffee on Patreon. Patreon is a monthly donation service where uh, you can donate just a few bucks a month, dings your credit card, super simple. You can also head over to my website, kyle.surf, to donate or check out any of my articles. I'm going to read you my latest article that I wrote for the Inertia uh, before we get this podcast going. It's a little 500-word essay on spearfishing, but first I'm going to introduce my guest, um, so if you don't want to listen to me read the story, you're welcome to skip ahead through that. My guest today is Simon Rex, a.k.a. Dirt Nasty. Uh, he played the lead in Scary Movie 3, 4, and 5. You will most likely recognize his music. Um, he is a hilarious dude um, and a really, uh, really creative guy. And he's someone who I can tell has focused on having creativity stay at the center of his life. Um very curious and just a, a, a good dude to be around. Very well liked also. Um, everyone who I've talked to about Simon has very good things to say about him. So you know you're doing something right when you have a lot of people saying nice things about you. Okay, I'm going to read you my article. I give the climbing rope a tug, then turn and follow the Spartan down the face of the cliff to the isolated cove in Big Sur, California. The Spartan had been a hunting guide in Montana before moving to California to become a firefighter. He loves jujitsu, square dancing, and swimming to the bottom of the sea to shoot fish in the face. The 31-year-old does not hang out. Rather, he goes on missions. The last time we were together, I contracted a severe case of poison oak as we trudged through the wilderness to forage wild mushrooms. The Spartan does not get poison oak, supposedly because he eats it periodically. The time before that, we shot and skinned a boar together. The time before that, we drove to Mendocino to die for abalone. When I am with the Spartan, there is a 100% chance I will be physically exhausted by the end of a memorable day. I bet there's some fish past those kelp beds, he tells me, as we unpack our dive gear on the beach and look 200 meters out to sea. Spearfishing is an uncomfortable sport from the get-go. The 7mm thick dive suits require lubricant to get into. I douse the inside of my suit with some seaweed sludge, a mixture of water and pulverized kelp, and slither into the neoprene. 
equipped with a knife, weight belt, stringer, mask, snorkel, fins, and gun, I wade into the water and kick out through the choppy waves. Mariners warn that when the swell amplitude and interval are equal, it's a recipe for seasickness. Today is six feet at six seconds of northwest wind swell. As soon as I reach the kelp and stare into the abyss, I feel queasy. The Spartan is already braining a rockfish with his knife by the time I take my first drop. Although the visibility is poor, when I dive down about 25 feet, I spot at least a dozen rockfish and wait for one to get in range. With the bands on my gun cocked, I lurk behind a pinnacle and stay as still as possible. No fish come within range, and I have to swim up for air. I take five or six drops before a small rockfish swims right up to the tip of my gun. I fire. The fish thrashes for a moment, then opens its mouth and goes limp. I feed the fish back through the tip of my spear and tie it to the stringer around my waist. The process of fiddling with the fish in the choppy conditions, however, has left me feeling even more queasy. I surface, then remove my mask and snorkel and take a few deep breaths to ease the nausea. In one poetic moment, 200 meters off the coast of Big Sur, with a bloody skirt of fish around my waist, I vomit into the sky. I signal to the Spartan that I'm heading in. As soon as I reach the beach, I drink the beer I stuffed into my dive bag and wash down the sour puke taste in my mouth. That night, in a redwood grove up the hill, we meet friends and cook the best fish tacos of my life. We tell jokes that will never leave the campsite. As I close my eyes in my tent, exhausted, I conclude that I do not like spearfishing. I do, however, like having spearfished. Kyle Tierman here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. It's not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. Simon Rex on the mic, fresh back from Burning Man. Dude, are we just going to jump into it? Because <laughs> the burn, I, there's no way to not be the guy who's talking about Burning Man that's annoying because I didn't understand before. And I you already was, made videos about it, too. I made fun of it publicly. I made fun of it within my circle of friends. And I was so wrong that I almost feel bad about, <laughs> I almost feel bad about disrespecting such right. a cool thing and I never have that moral compass with comedy I don't like mean comedy but that was about as mean as I get would be like roasting burning man right. it seemed like you know but uh well, it's an what easy a, way to it's an easy it's thing too to easy. roast yeah yeah it's and it is and still even going there like I could still I just have actually have more material to make fun of but I I have a different attitude about what it is I was just wrong I thought it was a music festival with art Right. I didn't know that it was a city with a rich neighborhood, a poor neighborhood, a post office, a skate ramp, a jazz club, a coffee shop. Like, it's a city. Yeah. And within the city, it's whatever you want it to be. It's Westworld, you know? Yeah, I think about uh, this a lot. Like, it's a very fundamentally different way of socially organizing. Like, we have norms in this culture in Venice that are a little bit different than the norms in Topanga Canyon. Right. Which are more different from the norms in Iraq. Right. Which are different from the norms in in uh, France and 
in various cultures, certain ones value art more. Certain ones value individual gain over common good uh-huh. more. Right. And Burning Man is just a different way of socially organizing that tweaks it in such a way that it, it gets you out of your comfort zone very quickly. So it's not just a festival. It's a, it's a, it's a culture that supports art. It's a culture that is so difficult to be in that it forces a kind of bonding between people. And I think that that's what's so exciting is that you're, you're thrust into a completely different culture. With no phone. Yeah. So you're forced to be in the moment and not, uh, you know, go to your phone in any moment right. of weakness or uh, insecurity or <clears throat> boredom. And there's no money. There's no news. You realize mm. how quickly, once you kind of strip away those things that are just kind of toxic, how much right. we don't need them and how happy you are without them. I mean, I felt this overall energy there obviously like everyone's kind of tuned into the same frequency and and even more so than all the type of people that go there they're definitely in that frequency for that week so the energy there that's what i had this craziest thing happen i i I took mushrooms the first day i got there everyone's like don't rage right away so to me not raging is like doing organic mushrooms i just did a little bit but it was enough to kind of feel the vibe and dude i came back to my friend's trailer and i had this full like chest explode this sounds so like Lame. We're going for it. We're going uh, dude, deep. I had this full on like, like DMT psychedelic chest opening. Like I just felt all the love in the air or something. I don't even know how to describe it. It was like this rad, like, uh, not out of body experience. Cause I was definitely, my body was just this, I just felt the love in the air. Right. Dude, everyone in there is just so cool. Like, and the automatic, it's crazy how quick we adapt, how quickly I, don't you dare litter on this sacred land within 24 hours i learned that like not that like people tell you and you just don't litter like wow i that's amazing in itself um you know i see some guy on the side of the road with the bike chain pulled over and helped you you were with me yeah pulled over and helped the guy and all i did was just help him i just lifted the thing got him on his way he hugged me and moved on like i don't know if i do that in venice and i should but immediately you're sort of this better version of yourself right right you know yeah what do you think uh like what that, that heart openings that's that's interesting because that doesn't happen all the time no especially on the first day right like i think i'm just a real open channel naturally yeah. and i'm super sensitive to energy and i'm almost to the point where it's not a good thing right but there it was a good thing out here in the real world in the default world is that what they call or it? one world you yeah. know like there are certain cultures where it's more okay to be open or vulnerable like you and I were just talking about this on the way over here how it's like it's very difficult to talk about having a hard time in LA right because all of your friends are seem like they're killing it so hard right yeah oh yeah we were just starting to get on that uh I was saying how, you know, in, in at least we're, we're in Venice right now where it's the vibe here in Venice is for L.A., I think, as good as it gets. You're right. by the beach. Not everyone here is in the industry. It's a little more of a tech skater vibe. There's some history here. It's just got a vibe, you know, it's just kind of cool. Um, I lived in Hollywood for so long. I'm almost 20 years, I guess 18 years. And I was telling you earlier that uh, here's the problem with Hollywood is that nobody's ever happy, at least within the Hollywood world of making it in show business, because I'll be driving down the street. And I'll look up on Sunset Boulevard and I'll see my peers that I came up with when I came to L.A. 20 years ago. You know, I'll see Chris Evans, who's my boy, on a, you know, Marvel superhero billboard. And at first, my instinct is stoked for my boy. And then I'm like, man, you know, maybe I, why am I not there? You know, and then he's calling his agent going, why am I not where, you know, uh, 
Leonardo DiCaprio Leonardo is. DiCaprio is, right. you know? Um, and somebody's calling their agent going, why am I not where Simon is? So it's all relative. Like everyone's, no one's ever happy because it's never enough. So I, I learned that. I actually was listening to Neil Brennan was talking about that on Chris Ryan's podcast. He was saying how, why is number 14 not okay? Like if it, you're stoked to be, you know, uh, even in the conversation in show business to make it, you don't got to be number one. You know, this is an interesting point he made. And I was thinking the same thing, how, uh, you know, people, yeah, people just are never quite content. So there's this restless energy that you were talking about in Hollywood, you get anxiety and it's in the air. It's just, again, it's like energy. Everything's energy. And like in Hollywood, that's the energy field. So it's a little intense. So moving out to Venice was definitely a good, like, move it wasn't a good move professionally because now that i'm out in venice it's like i moved to china nobody comes out here to visit if there's ever like some premiere or an event that i should go to i'm like ah fuck it i'm just gonna stay in venice. <laughs> so i've noticed that it's affected work because i'm just not in the you mix you get in the car you're like okay i'm gonna go and then you're in there for five minutes you're like ah yeah i'm gonna turn around and watch ozark tonight yeah exactly and but because of that like a lot of the game of being you know in hollywood is you gotta go shake hands and kiss babies and grab little baby penises if you have to. Maybe not that. Softly. Yeah. Gently. <laughs> Do you, like, was there a point when you started to notice that? Because I think that everyone has those thoughts of, of aspiration, not feeling good enough. I certainly do all the time. Like I, I would, one of my most consistent thoughts throughout the day is not feeling good enough. Right. But I notice it. And it's about like not giving those thoughts too much real estate. Well, I think and you come to Hollywood and it's like it's the everywhere. big dogs. Right. You're, you're going to the comedy store and you're around the biggest comedians in the world. Like, it's not like you're in, you know, Tallahassee. You're with the right. biggest people. So it's, it's hard not to be intimidated. So do you, was there a point in your career when you started to notice that train of thought? Yeah, like, I think, well, yeah, I, it was. It was pretty quick. Well, I start. you know, I was in New York from 93 to 98 and I worked for MTV back then. And that's where I got, kind of got my first taste of show business because I was just thrust right into interviewing big celebrities and traveling around and doing live television. I mean, this is 97, 98 or 96, 97. And, uh, it was, you know, I was just a kid. I was like 23 years old. And, and I, I think I got spoiled really quick cause I was thrown into that world and interview, you know, again, I'm interviewing Jackie Chan and interviewing Howard Stern and all these big people. I'm like, Whoa. And then, uh, I started going in for auditions and stuff because I started getting requested to go in for movies and I started getting rejected all the time. So I learned real quick, better have tough skin because you're going to get rejected a lot. So as sensitive as I am on a deeper level, I think surfacely, I, if that's the right way to say it, I kind of got this hardened shell and you get that in New York anyway. So I kind of got this tough exterior because you're constantly being told you're not good enough. Right. Always. You didn't get the job. You're not good enough. Of course, you're going to take it personally somewhat or, or, you know, and, and so much, I would, this is what I learned is that it's so much not about talent. It, it will, I'm sure to a certain degree, I guess once you're even in the game, you have enough talent to be there, but there's so many elements that go into why you didn't get the job. There's so much politics involved. There's so much, Oh, does he look like the brother of the girl we already cast? Oh, does he have chemistry? Like I would go do chemistry reads. Like I'd be in the mix for a big movie and they would bring me in to go with the opposite female. And it was strictly a chemistry read where they'd go in and they'd see if we had chemistry. It's like, Hey, meet this person. There's 10 executives watching you. There's three cameras on you. Go have chemistry 
chemistry or not. And you're like, whoa, this is fucking weird. And they base it on your chemistry with the girl. So right. it's not about how good you read the lines all the time. It's like, are you, there's so many factors. Right. So you kind of learn to not <clears throat> take it so personally. And I think that just comes with time that you're like, oh, there's so many elements. It's not just like. Which is, I think, is a good thing to get that rejection a lot. You know, right? Kind of- Learning failure is super important. I think the the thing that seems the hardest, and I don't know this because I'm not an actor, is that when you feel like people are telling you that you're not good enough, that's the hardest thing. If it's a character that you're playing, if you, and maybe it's just your own ability to parse yourself from a character. Like if people don't like the character. What does parse mean? Like uh, to separate, to separate, okay. to, if you, to separate <clears throat> your full identity okay. from that failure. Right. I think is is a really uh, helpful thing. Like I li- I was listening to uh, Jerry Seinfeld talk about doing comedy when he was younger, and he said that it was never really that big of a deal. I don't know how honest he was being, but he was like, you know, it was never really that big of a deal when people didn't like my jokes because I was able to to think, well, that's just my joke. That's not fully me. That's right. just that's just a part of me that right. I'm putting out here and you don't like that part, which seems like it makes it way more manageable to take failure that if you sense. can separate it. Yeah, but, yeah. but when it becomes all encompassing, right. like if you if you bomb on stage and then you think I am not a funny person, right. That shit hurts. That's well, that's a real direct response too. Like doing stand up is as raw as it gets. I right. mean, I've <clears throat> it's funny you said that because by doing stand up, I remember going in like for those chemistry reads or like sometimes you'll go in and first of all, like I guess I don't even really consider myself an actor. I think I'm just a guy who got lucky, was in the right place at the right time, and ended up doing a few movies and TV shows because I never quite felt comfortable around other actors. I never felt like I was one of them. I just didn't. I never quite was, you know. Like I look back, I did a show called Jack and Jill, and there was it was an amazing cast. It was like Amanda Pete, Justin Kirk, Jamie Presley, um, a couple other people whose names are escaping me, and they're all killing it now. There's like a couple of us from the show who didn't go on to do huge things, and then like four of the six cast members are like huge movie stars and stuff. So I never quite felt like one of them. You know what I mean? Like I was just like I got lucky to be here. You know? So going, you know. I, I, I guess I'm an actor because I've done a few jobs, but I don't really consider myself one of them. I kind of just consider myself an entertainer, and I like to do comedy. So if, whether it's a silly song as Dirt Nasty or whether it's an Instagram video yeah. or a movie I get to do, I just like to do comedy, you know, right. under any format. <clears throat> it's funny how that happens. Like You can a lot of times like the idea of something, of doing something, a lot more than you actually like doing like it. Like sex. Like sex, sex is one of those things that's always better in your head. Always. Right. It's weird. Like having a threesome, like it's like every guy's fantasy and it's great. And then it happens and it's never quite what you picture right. it to be. You know? Well, and acting is the ultimate one professionally. Everyone thinks that they want to be on that billboard and that's the life that they want. But then maybe you get there and you realize like, oh, I actually enjoyed the music thing more. Or in, like for you, it seems like you really gravitate towards podcasters yeah. for, for whatever reason. Yeah, like yeah. That's a group of people that you enjoy being around. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's just like intellectual conversations with like-minded people that are, well, that means I just said that I'm intellectual, but I, I mean that I'm more interested. I'm just at a point in my life too. I think I'm 44 years old. If it wasn't podcasts, I'd be listening to AM radio. You know, it's just, you kind of like that's, I find myself less interested in playing, you know, uh, a song in my car than listening to a nice conversation. Right. You do, know, do you um, do you feel like you've kind of cultivated that curiosity? Like my, I have a theory about you, which is that like <laughs> I think that your curiosity has saved your life. 
Quite possibly. Because I never you, thought of like that if way. you you have a lot of energy coming at you uh, at any one point, and uh, that can naturally make you want to to harden yourself, right. which is the opposite of curiosity. It's like this is me. I'm I'm the shit. I'm encased in my own ego now. Right. Which isn't it isn't interesting, and it actually makes it uh, hell to live in. But if you can break that open and be comfortable asking questions like, hey, what does that word mean? Right. That says a lot about you, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and then it allows you to move forward into the next the next project. Right. Yeah, that makes that? sense. I never thought about it that way, but I'm constantly exploring new things like I've just kind of I don't know, man. It's like, for instance, I was living in New York. I was doing like modeling back in the day and I was living in New York and I was just a guy who was like, you know, in my early twenties getting to live in Paris, Milan in New York and doing like runway shows and just making enough money to get by. And it was cool, but I never quite was like fulfilled with it. Like it was just kind of lame to me to go in a room with other dudes and say, who's the best looking guy for the job. It's just lame. So then the MTV gig came around. I remember they hired me and that just presented itself. So I jumped through that window and then Gus Van Sant saw me on MTV and said, oh, I want to read Simon for a movie I'm doing. It was Goodwill Hunting. And I went and read for him in front of Matt Damon. And I never auditioned or never acted in my life. And mid-audition, Gus Van Sant stopped me and said, Simon, I have to stop you. That was awful. That was the worst audition I've ever seen. And I was like, yeah, I've never done this before, man. He goes, it's okay. I'm going to send you an acting coach because you have something. You're just not there yet. You're not ready for this movie. And Matt Damon's like looking at the floor, like trying not to laugh. It was so <laughs> awkward. But I was glad how honest he was. Yeah. Then he sent me to an acting coach and then I jumped through that window and then I moved to LA and I was doing acting and then I, there's a lot of downtime as an actor so I picked up music as a hobby and started doing that and then next thing you know I'm producing this guy Mickey Avalon and the Red Hot Chili Peppers like hey will you open up for us in Europe fuck yeah you, I jumped through that window so I'm constantly and then I tried I tried stand up within that window of time a couple times too and I'm just like constantly exploring new things that present themselves more so than going after it like I never was like I'm gonna be an actor I'm gonna be a rapper I'm gonna it just was there in front of me so let's do it so it's it's curious it's exploring new things and it's not it's being it's not it's being not afraid to try right you know what i mean and not look because you got, like, if you can embrace looking stupid and take the pie on the face you'll win ev all day long yeah. you know do you, That's, do you yeah. remember the first time that happened to you um, like were there any moments as a kid because it's a there's a couple different worldviews that you're going through life with or that people are going through life with. And one is, is afraid because right. something happened to them at a, as a kid where they got made fun of and they couldn't take it. And they thought that that was the worst thing that could ever happen. And as a result, they don't take those chances. And then there's, there's a mindset where you, whatever you, you fall on the wave or you eat shit on stage and you realize like, Hey, I'm still here. Right. And that actually helped me uh, become a better version of myself. Right. Uh, and I think that that's a, a, it's a mindset that you have seems to be. And I'm wondering like, wh when did that start? Um, I don't know. That's a good question. Uh, I remember, it's funny because I remember kind of getting the bug to be the class clown. I was always like the class clown. And I remember I was at an Oakland A's game when I was like 12 and I was with a group of my friends in the bleachers cause they used to give away bleachers tickets and we'd go to the bleachers and, uh, 
the jumbotron, you know, the big screen, it cut to me and my boys and I flipped the camera off and 38,000 people laughed at once. And I remember going, oh shit, that's magic. But it was not like from that point, I'm like, I'm going to be in showbiz. But I remember that triggering something to be like, whoa, that was a cool feeling that kind of sat dormant for 10 years or something. But I remember that being like a something that happened that planted a seed that was like, whoa. And I, I don't think I've ever experienced that again because that was, imagine making a stadium laugh. Right. That was magic, man. I don't, I've never had that again, you know? That amount of people. Maybe right. it was even more. I mean, what's a baseball stadium hold? Something like that. I have to look it up. But it was like a sold out game in Oakland. And I remember the whole stadium laughing at once. And it was like, it gave me the goosebumps. Yeah. You know? That's power. It was so cool. That's power. Yeah. yeah. There's, there's a, a, a true power in making... 30,000 people involuntarily do something. It was the most juvenile. It was just right. flipping up, but it was like, who's this kid? You know what I mean? And yeah. I remember, but then to yeah. develop that, that's a cool one. So that's different than what you're asking though. Cause you're asking me like, wh wh at what point did, what was the real question? You wasn't like, when did I catch the interest in entertainment? It was, when did I learn? What did you ask me? Again? Well, yeah. When did you learn that that was a, a mindset that you wanted to adopt? You know, cause there are these experiences that we have as kids that, kind of build our mindset to to go through the world with like I I'll, I uh, will try most anything if I'm not going to harm myself or others right like my biggest fear well physically because you do go big wave surfing yeah, like you can harm yourself no yeah but I but I uh, try and mitigate risks as much right, as possible right. like my biggest fear is being in a situation surfing big waves and like being on the jet ski and having not done the work to go in and save someone. Right. And, and having the thought like, man, this person's going to die now because I didn't do that work. I'm, I'm right. very careful about that. But when it comes to like getting up on stage and making a fool of myself, like, yeah, it can make you feel like you're going to die. But I'm able to separate those two things because they're not the same. There's like a, right. there's the feeling of a spiritual death, which still sucks. But then there's a real death and and um, it's I don't like want to be hero's careless. journey. If you think about it, you're going out at like the hero's journey, right? right. You go out, you kind of go out of your comfort zone, you risk it all and you come back with something that changes you, you know, uh, and you come back to, it's kind of like just within that. It's almost like what we did, uh, you know, what we did at Burning Man when we, when I, I told you it was my first day and I was like, Oh, I want to go check out this comedy tent. They're doing a bad joke contest. And, and, and you rolled with yeah. me and we ended up doing the contest together. That was some of the best moments. It's not what I thought at all. It's like, Oh, I'm just going to be looking at cool art at a rave. It was more immersing myself into this world of comedy tent you know uh let's go check that out and then we did it twice you whipped your dick out at the first one i didn't notice that until you told me after i don't think anybody noticed that <laughs> i don't think anyone does that because you gotta clarify the story yeah here. yeah well because it was so small or? it was a little yeah it was, it was, yeah let's go let's, let's kind of bring it back to burning it because that's interesting let's bring it back yeah so simon and i did a comedy contest where we were a team yeah, against yeah, yeah. another team across right. the table and then there was an audience <laughs> and the goal they were right crotch level to you right, too yeah so the goal was to make the other team laugh so you'd look them in the eyes right and you know you would you would say you know why is air a lot like sex because it's no big deal until you're not getting any. Right. And you'd stare at them. Right. And then they would laugh. But then there was this moment in it where like no one was laughing for a while. Oh, no, very long. long. It was yeah. a good 10 minutes, I'd say. And I was wearing a tutu. And uh, there was this point where I whipped my dick out. And I was like, okay, they're just going to, like, they're going to see it. And they're going to involuntarily crack up. But right. I was out for like a minute. And you were telling a joke. 
And then no one like no one saw it, like no one from the audience or anything. Right. And I got cold feet. I'm like, fuck this. And I just put it out back in and then on the way out, I was like, That's funny. Simon, dude, I did that. And you're like, fuck, you should have been like, you know what's really awkward is when you're trying to tell a joke and you realize your cock's out. Yeah. <laughs> is that what I said to do? Yeah, yeah that would have got them to look and probably react. But it, it, it got to the point where obviously no one was gonna laugh. So they had to just say next contestants because we would have sat there forever because we were just doing kind of bad stock jokes that weren't really laugh out loud funny. But that to me, that's where the comedy comes. You know, if you think about it, it's hard to like for, for something to make me laugh out loud. It's got to be pretty fucking funny. I could watch a movie that's really funny and not laugh. And I could walk away going, that movie was funny, but I'm not really like, ha ha. Do you know what I mean? It's a yeah. weird thing. Like. I don't yeah. know if I'm just numb to it or I've been around the funniest people, whatever, but like it takes a lot for me to laugh out loud, yeah. you know, to really crack up. I think that uh, one thing that's great about um, about Burning Man and one thing that we have talked about before is that it's constantly confronting you every moment of the day. Um, so you are, like in regular society, it's very easy to shield yourself from perceived danger right you can uh build a friend circle around you who just tell you that you're the man you can have a comfy life not go into dangerous situations netflix and chill not mm -hmm. do anything that scares you you have to voluntarily put yourself out there and even like when it comes to doing open mics or something you have to wait in line right. to put yourself out there right whereas at burning man on every single corner, there are people who are confronting you to break out of your shell. Right. Like I have friends who do a camp called Mimosa Sunrise. They do mm -hmm. Mimosa Sunrise uh, every morning there. And the, on the first day, there were cars coming in and they put up caution tape around uh, one of the corners so no one could drive through. And they were like, sir, you need to get out of the car right I now. I saw them. Yeah, yeah. I have a mimosa yeah, with yeah, us. Yeah, and they're like, dude, I just got to Burning Man. Please let me go to my camp. Like, <laughs> sir, I don't make the rules here. You yeah, need yeah, to yeah. come in and have a mimosa with us. Yeah. You know, so there's that. There's like the person in the middle of the street. Like one of my favorite little moments there. There was a person in the street with one of those um, golden railings, like Academy Awards dollars, like golden and then right. red velvet. And they just put it in the middle of the street. And when you would bike down, they would open the railing and say, Welcome through, sir. Right. And then they would close it again. Right. And this is just like a little right, five right, by right, five right. railing, like the silliest little moments. Those little things are what it's all about that I, you can't really explain. I mean, you could explain it, but if you haven't been, that's, it's like to anybody listening, I get it. If you're like, Oh God, with it's the burning, if you haven't been, that's how you, that's how it's perceived. But then when you go, you realize it's so much more than that. It's a really cool experience. And I, like I said, I've had some amazing weeks, but that was like seven days straight. That was the best week I've ever had in my life. Right. And there's so many of those little moments that happened. And I, going alone was, A, the best thing I could have done. Going by myself, and I got to click up with you at the base camp that we were at, um, at Bounce Camp. I got to go click up with like three other friends, or two or three other friends I had at different camps. And I would just go click up and ride out or go alone or go out with you. We had our Mellow Friday that night, and, and I got to really experience it for what it is and not because I, I noticed what would happen was if you go like I'd go out with three was the magic number when me you and tyranny went out that was perfect when I'd go out with like seven or eight people you end up constantly waiting for someone to go to the bathroom I forgot my scarf the energy shifts and it becomes too much of this big unit that's why one two or three is the mm -hmm. way to go anything more it's going to get a little tricky and you're not going to get to experience as much yeah when you go out alone man you dive into that shit head first I always think about you know I was talking about um 
these different ways of um, interacting socially and how different cultures have their norms. How could you set up um, situations in Venice to confront people with their own egos more throughout the day? Because art can do that, right? It shows you this. It can show you this very honest reflection of yourself. It can show you um, a way of looking at the world that you never thought you could. And it's kind of like this Trojan horse, where they're not just telling you, like, "Hi, this is the way that things need to be." Like, there's, uh, like, we've talked about this, how ineffective environmentalists can be mm-hmm. because they they don't come at communication with any kind of creativity. Like, they just tell you that this is, these are the stats, this is what's happening, and ah, it scares you. Whereas, um, you know, if you build a, you know, like, I have friends who built this boat out of plastic bottles, and they sailed to Hawaii with it. No way. And that was the whole thing. From, they really They're from L.A., yeah, from L.A. to Hawaii. And it's a super cool story, right? Like, me just telling you that, it kind of drew you in to engage you more. I'm trying to visualize it. Uh, Do yeah, they the go name- through the plastic island that's the size of Texas? Yeah. Okay. But Do they go around a, it? Yes, I know. I'm just kidding. It's not a plastic island. <laughs> I know. It's I know. a soup. Um, I know. But you, like, uh, I, let's, let's create this. Like, what could be shifts in the society, whether it's art, more art, you know, like a, a, a piece of art on every roundabout. Right. Or a way to confront people on every corner before they go to work to check themselves. Maybe that's what the art could be is like a check yourself reflective, like some type of art that literally addresses that. Or I mean, I guess that couldn't be on every corner. But uh, yeah, I don't know, man. That's interesting. Like, are you, so you're saying basically to apply like the Burning Man way to the real world, like how would it work? Yeah. And, and, and specifically like, about that like well, we're, uh, I don't want to cut you off, but like no. we're talking about um, how comfort can be really dangerous. Right. Right. And like Netflix and chill. I mm-hmm. got my job and I tell people how much money I make and I'm excruciatingly uh, in, ho- just in horrible pain on the inside, but can't tell anyone. Whereas like Burning Man, you have these these systems like even like the temple where it's a place for grieving right where it's okay to grieve right. and cry we don't have many of those places in our society no we don't we don't especially like in america yeah. in the west you know i know that you wanted to slow down the way that you speak no, in this no. podcast so you can take yeah your time yeah to think i feel like i'm this. doing pretty good You're with doing the, great. i'm not flying through anything <laughs> um yeah i was telling i was telling uh kyle earlier that listening to elon musk on rogan how he would take these dramatic long pauses before answering every question. Like the Dalai Lama was uh, interesting. Maybe it was just because he was stoned. Yeah. <laughs> he had to process a little slower. You know, there was also things going around saying he didn't inhale. And I watched it again, and I think he didn't inhale, dude. Watch it again. Watch him on there. That's okay if he didn't, but I was kind of hoping he got stoned. But I think he does like the fake. <sighs> I'm serious, dude. Watch it again. I think he fake stonered it. Um, what would you do if Simon was king? What would I do? To, what, what would you do to, for society to um, confront oh, confront people more throughout the day? Or what? What else have you seen? That, uh, you that's know, uh, I I would do like a no cell phone day. 
or something like that to where, because that was a huge thing for me was just no phone, how much that forces you to deal with shit and to engage in conversation. That's why podcasts are so great. We were talking about this last night. Podcasts are so great because for 90 minutes or whatever the length is, you're not on your phone. You're talking with somebody. This doesn't happen too much anymore. It's like anything before 1999 or whenever cell phones really came out, like late 90s, I guess. I think I had my first Nokia phone in 98. So pretty much half of my life was no internet and cell phone. And those days, there was a different standard of what it was to make plans and to be in the moment and all these things that you didn't even realize were so valuable that Burning Man brings it back to, which is you can't go to your phone in any moment of weakness and you got to just fucking deal with shit and you, you grow because you're having these moments of, you know, you know, maybe I should do this more or I should, you know what? I need to call so-and-so back and tell them I'm sorry. Or you know what? Fuck him for do whatever the fuck it is. You have those moments, man. So I think that makes everybody a better person. So I would enforce maybe, I don't know, one day a week would be enough. Maybe it would be like, a, oh, maybe there'd be no phone zones where you go to parts of the city where the restaurants and you like the phone shut down, you yeah. know, and you can't, it's almost like there's a feature on the phone called like, I think it's called driving mode or something where you can hit a button and when you're driving, it knows your car's moving, it shuts down. So you're not going to get in an accident tweeting while driving something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a big shift, man, to, to be out in a cool place and not be able to take a photo and not have that be the culture. Um, it shifts my experience to, uh, why I'm there. Like right. really, really, it's like, are you watching the sunset to watch the sunset? Or are you watching it to share it? Right. Because whenever I'm watching it to share it, um, I'm thinking th like, or if I don't have my phone with me, I'm like, Ooh, I'm missing out because other people need to know because I want that extra little booster of dopamine that I'm going to get immediately after I post this. It's exactly what it is too. Um, that's a weird thing that happened that we're all guilty of. And that's why whenever I travel overseas, I never hook my phone up internationally. I just use it at the hotel or at a cafe. So 90% of my day, I'm not on my phone doing that. And because that's exactly what happens. It takes you out of the moment. So I guess if I were king, that's where I'd start. I'd start with the no phones, and I think so many things would follow that. You know what I mean? People would freak out, man. I would say, like, if some hacker deleted Instagram, what it would do, it would be, like, chaos in the streets. People's fucking lives revolve around that shit. I've deleted my Instagram for a month at a time, and it's crazy how much more I read, how much more I work on music, like, how much it's fucking sucks, literally, you. And... um. Now what I do is we talk, I think I was talking to you about this. I set a timer now. So if I'm about to go on Instagram, I set a five minute timer. And as soon as I'm mindlessly scrolling, looking at people bragging on their boats and their fucking jets and their lunch and their travels, feeling lesser than it goes off. I'm like, oh, thank you. Fuck. Cause I would have been on here another 10 minutes at least. Yeah. It was crazy to listen to Elon Musk on Rogan talking oh, yeah. about social media. Yeah. Okay, here's one of the smartest guys in the world. Yeah. It takes a very long time. Uh huh before he says something because you can tell he thinks about it really deeply. And one of his main points was how horrible social media is and how much it makes us compare ourselves to each other. It's like the the billboard that you were talking about. Yep. Like, oh, I want to be there. It's like a billboard. It's, it's this series of billboards on your phone. It's not healthy, man. No. It's not healthy. And it's one thing to do like, you know, you, I just unfollowed everybody except six people. I just went through... And I unfollowed 700 people. 
And now I open my Instagram and there's nothing to look at except like my dad, my brother, my stepbrother, my girlfriend. Like I kept Chris and Theo and everyone else. I just didn't. I just deleted everybody, including you and my mother. <laughs> I don't know why I just went through. I didn't even, but I didn't even, but I didn't even do it. I just literally just unfollow. And somehow at the very end, I was left with six and I just kept them because I needed something to look at. That's good. But now I open my phone and there's nothing to look at. And I tell you, not only am I on my phone less, I'm not feeling lesser than because yeah. I'm not looking, even though you're certain people, you realize it's not healthy to follow. It's like you could go. You could go onto YouTube and see whatever you want. You could see a beheading, or you could look at aerial footage of Bali. It's up to you. What do you want to look at? What do you want to do to your spirit and soul? And like fucking, you know, it's up to you. So it's the same thing on Instagram. Who do you want to follow? Who do you? And I realize I'm following all these like weird like things. That a couple like this one was called One Eight Seven Gangsters. It's an amazing account. It's fucking phone smuggled into prisons around the world and then broadcasting from jail live or pre-recorded around the world from Whoa. London to France to Africa. What do you see? You see like prison riots and you see stab, you see heavy shit. And I realized after a while, I'm like, why am I looking at this? At first it was cool. And now I'm like, oh, this is traumatizing. Like one of the video clips the other day was just a dude getting dragged off in Nicaragua into a field and shot in the head and murdered. I'm like, whoa, I didn't sign up for this. Whoa. I'll never erase that out of my head. It was so fucking gnarly. It was so traumatizing. It was like, and you realize it's kind of the same thing that happens when you watch the news. Cause sometimes I'll, I quit the news for one year, about a year ago before Trump got elected, like right before that. Cause then it got real interesting to see see the news, at least entertaining. Um, so I quit news for a year and it changed my whole fucking psyche, dude. Like I didn't, I deleted all my news apps. I stopped watching it on TV. If anyone would bring it up, I, I kind of felt like, yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. It feels good. And I really felt healthier mentally because what's happening is you're downloading these mini traumatic experiences all day when you're watching a mass shooting or some terrorist shit, whatever the fuck it is. It's tra- you don't realize that shit's traumatizing you on little tiny pieces. No, you're not seeing it in person. You're still like human being downloading this information like you saw it. So I think it's healthier to not look at that shit all the time or at least take a break. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And to um, like one of my favorite quotes is uh jonathan he's like a mindfulness guru it's uh tend to the part of the garden you can touch right so like what what change can you affect in your community right what change can you affect within yourself or in your friend start with yourself and your friend group and your community exactly yeah yeah yeah. that makes sense beyond that it it is it's a form of entertainment it's a form of of just a different kind of pornography where you're getting that same like oh oh my god that's intense did you see what he did did you see what he did i'm not doing anything about it, but right. it just got me so riled up. Well, that's the thing with conspiracy theorists to me is that at the end of the day, how does it affect your day-to-day life and what are you going to do about it? Because yep. if you're just going to talk about it and, you know, I understand questioning everything, but that doesn't mean that the answer is what the internet told you on YouTube, you know? So for me, a lot of that applies to, because I went through my conspiracy theorist phase when I was in my 20s when I discovered Zeitgeist and, you know, it was like a VHS cassette of it and it was like... Oh yeah, question everything. And then you get to a point where like, what the fuck am I going to do about it? And I'm still going to ride my bike to the beach in Venice. I'm still going to have a smoothie. I'm still going to go fucking, nothing's changed. So what the fuck? Why do this? It's interesting. And I get it, the curiosity thing, but that it's not, I think that's unhealthy too. Yeah. I think that the the healthy part of consuming news is, is developing critical thinking skills. Right. So I like to look at a lot of different kinds of news and talk to a lot of different people because it develops that part of me. Like, you know how you're talking about the, I'm going to keep going back to the billboard thing where you, you see a friend who's on a billboard, he's more famous than you. And mm-hmm. you're like, fuck, I want that. And then you notice the thought of like, 
oh, that's just this part of myself right. that wants that. I'm going to keep that one in check. Right. And if you're watching mainstream news, for example, you can um, you can look at it through the filter with a critical eye. Like, huh, I wonder uh, if they're getting their money from Halberton. That's interesting. Okay, because I'm going to look at this story now right, right. through that lens. Right. So it's it's always good to look at it, um, the world through incentives and, and get better at developing that eye. I was thinking yeah. about... Um, Man, I just I, I love talking to you because your curiosity for the world is so fucking vast. Like you're talking about prison riots and you know aerial footage of Bali, and uh-huh. I think that's one of the beautiful things about podcasts is you get to expand your scope through the guests that you talk right, to. Right, right. And um, going back to this this theme of social organizing, like the incentives at a place like Burning Man to be nice to other people and to stop and help someone with their bike chain are set in place so that you tend to do that. Whereas the incentives in in prison are so bad that even a good person will will act poorly. And and they'll adapt. It's funny you said that because I thought about that. Like I've only been to like sat in a couple jail cells for 24 hours or something like that. And and uh I never really did like jail time or anything like that, but uh, I always wondered how quick you could adapt. And it's almost like how quick you adapt in Burning Man to that world. And you're just yeah. like, oh, these are the rules set in place. I get down there, like, and you go to jail and you'd be like, okay, this is my reality now. This is my world. You adapt quicker than you think. We're very adaptive species, you know? So when that f- structure of Burning Man is set in place, those rules or those, I wouldn't say, I guess it's, it's, it's rules. I mean, that's kind of the unspoken, or it's not unspoken, it's spoken of. It's right. like help everyone out, you know, um, bring a gift of sorts and share, you know, that egalitarian yeah. way that really felt like a tribal community of, you form these bonds, you know, when it's something as simple as you saying, here, I got a salad, you got, you know, oh, I got a PB&J or I got some juice and coconut water, whatever. And you're sharing that, that forms bonds real quick. And I don't think we do that enough out here in the real world. Cause it always feels good. Like remember I was doing this TV show and, uh, the wardrobe girl kept saying how much she loved this t-shirt that I had. So I went home and I was like, man, I should do the right thing. I should bring it to her tomorrow. And it was my favorite shirt. It was this, this red T-shirt I got at the thrift store that everyone complimented. It fit perfect. It was my shit. And I brought it and gave it to her on the last day of work. And she was so thankful. And it was just, that felt so, that felt better than wearing the shirt and getting compliments all the time. Was giving it up, you know, that sharing kind of way, you know. That feels good. It feels, that's how we're supposed to be, you know. That's how we were for hundreds of thousands of years, is sharing and you know, if I caught elk that day, you'd be eating it. And when you got some, and I think that that goes deep into our DNA or something, because you feel this surge of like something. The only time I can compare it to what I felt like that before is I went hunting once and uh, I went boar hunting in Hawaii and I stabbed a boar to death. It was fucking the, maybe the gnarliest thing I've ever done. <laughs> yeah, I've done it was traumatizing. I've like I was that, shaking. I've done that before. I it, know about the shakes. So, okay. Yeah, it was intense. fucking intense. It was yeah. like, and they with, say. With a knife, do you, yeah, go, with, do you go with dogs? The back. So, yeah, with the dogs. The yeah. dogs hold it down. They circle, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And they'll hold it down. You stab it through the back. and On Oahu? It, no, in Kauai. In Kauai, yeah. yeah. It was so intense. Really? And then I brought, we brought it back. T- you know, tell skin. me, just tell me the story. Okay, so I'm out in, I'm out in Kauai. I got a good friend who lives out there and her husband at the time is this gnarly dude named Kona and he's like the 
fucking man in Kauai who's like the badass tough dude who fucking you know hunts and does you know he's just a cowboy you know a horseback riding you know hunter gnarly motherfucker and uh he took me out boar hunting he's like you want to go boar hunting I'm like sure that's something I've never done let me I eat meat let me do this once in my life I'm gonna eat meat I should experience the process you know so and I and I really love bacon um so I go out with them and we go out with like four dudes and guns and the dogs with the GPS collar and you go out and he's explaining to me before we get out there he's like look if we get the we're gonna let you get the kill if we get the boar what you're gonna do is you're gonna stab it from behind he was showing me on my rib cage like where to stab through the rib cage in the back into the heart for the most humane killing so we get out there the dogs are going nuts we fucking we follow the gps they're all each dog's holding down a limb and this big hawaiian dude that's with us puts his foot on the back of the sow it was a sow a female boar uh's neck female pig female pig oh sorry yeah boars are the male pig that's what i meant um and it's got these huge tusks and it's snarling and he's holding it down he's like stab it brother and i fucking go to stab it and i hit the rib i felt bone and he's like you missed try again brother second stab went in this was a crocodile dundee knife like a huge knife that was so sharp and it just went in like a hot, uh, hot knife and butter like right in and i just felt the hot air exit the uh the sow and it just deflated it was like and the life came out of it and it was i killed it that quick and i was shaking i had blood all over me they're like you gotta gut it brother you gotta gut it so I'm ripping out the intestines and the guts. It's like 30 pounds of, you know, in Oh, yeah. That's a, a psychedelic experience oh when you reach God. into that cavity God. and it, boop, 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 bro, it all straight, comes out. Straight up Star Wars when they go in the, in the, you know, he goes and hides in the fucking, what's it called? And, you know, anyway, yeah, yeah. So I'm pulling it all out and then they go, it's tradition, brother. You got to eat the heart. So no. I, I bite into the heart that's practically still beating. And I got blood all in my mouth, and it just tastes like iron. And they go, we just kidding, brother. You crazy. So I'm like, fuck. I spit out the heart. I, I got a picture of me carrying the boar out of the jungle with, like, blood drenched on me, blood on my face. Like a tri- And I went back, and to this day, when I go back to Kauai, like, that's the crazy howly that eats the heart. You know, they think it's funny to them. Like, I'm the, you know. And so we fed this whole neighborhood came around we went back to their farm or their like ranch area and all of a sudden they like whistle and all the kids from neighboring areas come out and everyone's eating and I sat back as they were all eating and I was like I feel like such a fucking man right now I hunted it was that feeling and it was just that egalitarian providing whatever that is was like deep in us that we never get most people never have that yeah you know it's so on a smaller it, scale, that's what Burning Man was like. We're just sharing what you got, and like it just feels good. Yeah, it diffuses the responsibility too when you kill an animal and then have a group of people eat it. It doesn't feel like you did it just for your own experience. Exactly, it, it feels like it's continuing to move through you. You're, um, I mean, to provide that for people, yeah. the strangers too, and children, and it was amazing, man. Yeah, yeah. You've uh, you spent a lot of time in Hawaii. Yeah, and, I do. And, the, and you're you're kind of like a. Like you have a uh, the the celebrity uh, like you know how when you're playing beer pong whatever you can get like a celebrity shot like uh-huh. okay like go in you, like you have the celebrity shot in the surf community like you're yeah, you, like you're able to get in with a very tight knit group of people like in Hawaii and and it's it's cool to see like you were doing the um, comedy stuff for Snap Three yep yep it's, yeah it, it's pretty cool because 
I, uh, I know all, it's funny because I went to Kauai back in like, I remember the first time I went, I think it was around 98, 99, I went to Kauai and I met Bruce and Andy Irons at the same time, walked into a house and they didn't like me at all because they were like, who's this fucking actor, fucking guy coming to Kauai and I was like dating this local hot girl, it was like the prettiest girl from the island and they all were like, fuck this, you know. And then eventually they got to know me and like me. And to this day, Bruce always says, you know, Simon taught me a valuable lesson. Don't judge a book by its cover because I didn't like him when I met him. And then he's like a good guy. So I met Bruce and Andy that way. And then more recently, I became friends uh, through Ruka, the clothing company, my friend Logan Doolian, Chucky, mm -hmm. my boy, his nickname's Chucky. And he's very deep in the surf world. He's friends with all the biggest surfers. So through that and Ruka and kind of meeting Bruce and Andy back in the day, I've gotten to be friends with these guys. And what I realized that they like about me is that I'm not a surfer because this is what happens. I remember once I was with uh, Dustin Barca in Kauai and we're overlooking the beach and he tested me when I first met him. He's like, what do you think, Simon? And I go, honestly, I have no idea what I'm looking at. And he goes, good fucking answer. Because if I was like, oh, a little offshore, you know, it was a test. I didn't realize he was like testing me to see if I was a fucking poser or a kook. I don't know shit about surfing. So that's what they liked was the fact that I wasn't kind of like how I don't want to be around actors all the time. I want to be around other people, you know, imagine being a pro surfer and all the dudes coming up all the time, annoying them, trying to be, you know what I mean? Like that whole shit. I get it. So I think by just the fact that I'm an outsider, but I was led inside and I'm sort of the you know, silly class clown amongst them that brings out the best in them. Because when you're shooting surf fucking videos, as you know, 90% of the surf trip is hanging out at the hotel or in a fucking just eating or whatever it is. Um, that's when you want to capture the gold that makes those surf movies so interesting is watching your heroes hanging out. People are always like, dude, I want to see what it's like to have lunch with Bruce Irons. Like, he's such a mystery. Like, my surfer homies like, what's he like? You know, like... Uh, so I get it. I'm kind of like the outsider that they let in to share with the rest of the, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I do. It's, uh, it's funny. I was thinking about what you said earlier about how it's okay to be 14th. Right. What Neil Brennan was saying, like right. you don't need to be number one. What you want though, is to be able to play in a lot of games. Jordan Peterson right. talks, he talks about, about that. Yeah, it's, like not a, you, it's not a game. It's a bunch of series of little games. Yeah. Right. It's about becoming someone who's fun to play with. Right. Because then you get to lead this really interesting life where you have this tight knit group of guys who are willing to let you in because you're fun to play with. Right. It's not about you being the best and, right. and showing them like, Oh, I know what's up. Yeah. Right. It's, tides going out. It's offshore. It's going to be good in two hours. Barca. Let me right. tell you, like, right. it's not about being that guy. It's just right. about being someone who they want to have be around. Right. And then as a result, you, yeah, you get to constantly move forward and then you win life. Right. That's interesting. That's, I, I, that's stood out to me amongst all the Jordan. Well, I've watched a lot of Jordan Peterson's videos and I remember that stood out a lot was life isn't one game. It's a series of little games and you right. want to have a winning percentage I, like I, a, like a baseball, a winning team has 738 win percent that that's winning in life. Right. You know, you don't have to win them all, but uh, you know, that stood out to me. Uh, yeah, that's that one stood out. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And there's this paradox though between trying to like 
tr- not trying. Oh, we could go down right? this road too. Yeah, yeah let's we, talk let's, about this. Yeah, yeah. Let's see. We've been going for yeah. We've got another ten or fifteen minutes. Oh, cool. Yeah, let's talk about trying not to try because yeah. I just read a book. Okay, I'm, I'm lying. I listened to a book. Yeah. I did the audio book of trying not to try right. and about the Uwe, which is the Chinese term for being in the flow, in the moment, and trying not to, and not and not trying. What I got out of the book was this: if you do something long enough and put in the work to where you're good at it to the point where you're in a flow state because you're so comfortable and you played basketball enough or you surfed enough or you did stand up enough to where when it's showtime you could go into that flow state that's what's attractive to people and it sucks people in is watching someone at their craft just go into that zone so it's not a matter because trying not to try once you start to try not to try you're trying so it's a never-ending conundrum how you try not to try well you do the legwork to get to the point where you don't have to try and it becomes something that's second nature and you could just do it without thinking and I think the whole thing the, the root of all that is when you're not thinking and you're just doing that's when the magic happens like this plaque right here for that song my dick I did a song called my dick literally the most immature vulgar silly topic of a song um, I made the beat in five minutes we recorded the whole song in an hour I didn't even want to do the song this, the song goes platinum. I work with the biggest producers from, you know, Dr. Luke to all these big, you know, he's a huge producer to whom all these big producers we worked with through Interscope Records and working with Too Short and George Clinton and all these big dogs. And that's the song that goes platinum, the one we weren't trying on. So that's the metaphor for life is don't try. And that's what Charles Bukowski left on his grave. Two words. If you look at Google Bukowski's grave, it says Who is he? Charles Bukowski, the author. He had left the boxing gloves and his tomb says he just left us with so many books of just endless drunk rambles and whatever his process was. And he would get fucked up and write. And he left two words. Don't try. And that's what he's talking about. Because it's one thing to not you you obviously got to try to some extent. But like like a job interview or going up to a girl, if you try too hard, they ain't going to hire you and she ain't going to fuck you. You know what I mean? Right. It's a weird thing. It's like. How do you couple that, though, with trying really hard to get good at something because I think that not trying can also be uh, it's a form of encasing yourself in fear of failure right like I, I, you know, there are people who, who are so afraid to try their hardest because deep down they know that if they try their hardest, they might fail. Right. Um, John Jones talks about this, how, how a week before the fighter, how a week before every fight he would get blacked out drunk and just super fucked up because, uh, he felt like then if he lost, he knew that he could be like, oh, well, that was just because oh, I got fucked up, right. which isn't a healthy thing to do. Right. Like, I, I think that it's beautiful to see people try their hardest right. and either fail or succeed, but at least they gave it their all. So how do you how do you couple not trying with because I agree with you, like like trying too hard. That's what scares people away. I think that, right. that then that's what it is. I think it's a degree of trying too hard. Right. Do you know what I mean? If you come in and for a job interview and you're overcompensating and being obsequious or just too, you know, doing too much. Good word. They're, yeah. They're going to, uh, for those out there, it means kiss ass, I believe. Yeah. Uh, kissing up. Uh, trying, just, trying to uh, an excessively attentive or obedient degree. Yeah, right. Brown nosing. Yeah. Or, or, or. Yeah, it's just overcoming. It's always a turnoff, I think, to people. So I think it could be applied to so many things. But like I said before, if you do the legwork and you like Chris was talking about this, 
the other day what was oh fuck what was he talking about he was saying how he's he's like I would be a good actor Acting, because yeah. I know when to back off and let things happen and not force it right so I think that's what it is I think it just comes to a point where you're doing too much so you gotta know when to reel back a little bit right and I think if you put in the work and the legwork and, and you know like all these little mini battles you get to the big stage and right. you're comfortable enough with what you've done to where you could be relaxed and yeah. breathe and be in the moment Chris you know? is also really good at um, like the reason he's so good at podcasting is because he'll maybe have an idea of what something's going to be in his mind. But if it's not that during the conversation, he's totally comfortable going in a new direction. Right. Like he doesn't hold on to what he thought it was going to be. A new ever. direction. Yeah. A nude erection. A new direction. A nude erection. Chris is very comfortable with a new <laughs> direction. direction. Uh, but yeah. that's, but yeah, I think yeah, that right, that's right. it because that's where the brilliance can be. It's like a, uh, like the the saying, like everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. Right. right? Like you can have your plan, but if you right. if you stick too hard to to your plan of who you're going to be or what your career is going to be or how the conversation is going to go, right. then it's hard not to do that, though, isn't it? Like it I still do that, you know. I still go into things like with a preconceived idea of what's going to happen, and I have to tell myself, dude, you, how many times have you been in the situation where you just just stop the overthinking shit or just go, you know, whatever it is like, like what, like going to like, a, for instance, I just was on the East coast and I had a show in Boston and I'm on the plane and I'm just thinking, fuck, I wonder how many tickets are going to sell. I wonder what's going to be like. I wonder if these people, are gonna sh- I'm like, stop, what, this isn't, this doesn't matter. Like whatever's going to happen is going to happen. Like it's not that I was worrying about it, but I was projecting and thinking and it doesn't really matter, you right. know? Uh, <clears throat> So, but that's a, that's not a good example, but, but stuff like that. What's it like for your, sorry, go for it. No, 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 that's it. What's it like for you, like, uh, for a show? Because it seems like you have your plan when you go on as dirt nasty, but then you also have, you're improving throughout that. I'm glad you just said that. Cause that's what I always do is every show I bring the crowd on stage. I find people, I look out in the crowd and I find people that got that thing, whatever it is, whether they're handicapped in some way, really physically handicapped, or whether they're a really hot girl or a really interesting, weird person. The people that stand out that got that, whatever it is, I bring them on stage and I make the show on stage interesting to watch for me. So if I'm interested in what's going on and I'm on my toes and I'm not knowing what this person's going to say and it's just a freak show, then the show's more interesting to me, therefore it's more interesting for the audience because I'm having a good time and I'm not just going through the numbers up there. I have the freedom to do, at this point, I've I've done shows for 12 years now and I'm comfortable enough to just bring people on stage and improv with them and make it a fucking freak show. How do you do that? I just bring I just look out in the crowd and I'm like, hey, you want to get? And I could just gauge it. I just feel it. And I'm like, get up here, man. And I had this kid with autism in Brooklyn jump on stage. I stopped the show. He was autistic and he was a rapper. And I stopped and there was a drum machine and I start playing the drum machine and he's rapping. I gave him the time of his life. He's like an aspiring rapper. So that to me makes the show interesting for me, for the crowd. I didn't know that was going to happen. I could have thought about it all I wanted on my way to Brooklyn. I would have never imagined an autistic kid would be at Soundcheck and wanted to rap. And not only that, when he showed up at Soundcheck, he wanted to rap most rappers would have been like I ain't letting that kid on stage fuck that I'm letting him on stage I'm gonna play the drums for him and I gave him a minute or whatever you know like that's all he needed and it was magic for everybody because no one knew what was gonna, I didn't know what was gonna happen you know what I mean so I keep it fresh like that and that way it's interesting every night and I never know what's gonna happen every night's a total mystery I could get punched in the face which did happen once huh. one time in 12 years I can't believe it hasn't happened more someone jumped on stage and punched me in the face Cra- I'll, I'll, I guess we could finish with this story sure. I don't know if you have to yeah, finish yeah. with no, it no, no I don't we can, okay, go, yeah. we can go as okay. long as we want um 
I was in us. I go to Australia. This is a good story. I go to Australia for a show and the tour manager, Chucky Logan Dooley and the surf, he, he booked me on a tour out there and, uh, he made the mistake of booking me the night we landed. So we, we land at 5 a.m. into Sydney, and I have a show that night. And if you've ever flown to Australia, you know that's fucked because you need a couple of days to get used to the time zone, and you're going to be so tired. So, of course, we land at 5 a.m. It's pitch black. I'm like, wait, I got to go do a show tonight at midnight? Oh, fuck. So all day long, I'm drinking espresso. Excuse me. I'm drinking espressos, and I'm you know, just trying to stay awake. So finally get on stage at midnight and I'm on stage holding the mic and I go, Australia, I go, uh, yeah, I said, what's up everybody? And this guy jumps on stage. He grabs the mic out of my hand and he screams Australia and punches me in the face with the mic in his hand. Like it was a roll of quarters. So it creates like if you were hold a, you know, I remember back in like the eighties, that was the thing. If you got in a fight, you hold a roll of quarters and it makes your punches harder. So essentially he had a roll of quarters in his hand cause he was holding the mic and he punches me in the face and I instinctively turned with the punch to like diffuse the punch. So I turned with the punch and I ended up looking right at my DJ and he just had this wide eyed look like, oh shit, I can't believe that just happened. And I just saw red and I instinctively grabbed the dude and applied what little jujitsu I learned from probably studying for like a year. And it was funny because I always wondered like, would jujitsu ever really play in real life what I've studied? And it did. I grabbed this dude by his shirt and turned the collar and pulled him up like grabbed his shirt like it was a t-shirt and I grabbed and turned tripped him fell off the stage which is about a foot high maybe two feet landed on top of him and started like ground and pounding him and I was just on top just hitting him and he's like blocking but I'm connecting and I remember thinking I'm beating this guy's ass I'm and I hadn't been in a fight in fucking years dude like 10 15 years and even then it wasn't it was more just like a little scrum or something I'm not a fighter I'm not a tough guy so I'm just beating this dude up and I remember thinking I can't believe I'm beating this dude's ass. And a circle forms around. They're going, duh, nah, stay, duh, nah, stay. And security pulls me off, and they're laughing. And they go, fuck, mate, we didn't think you had it in you. Good form, good form. They're like proud security guards. So the guy gets hauled down. I'm like, wait, 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 bring him back. I want to buy that guy a beer. That's the Australian way, right? And they wouldn't let him back in. Next day, I tweet, does anyone have footage of me beating up that guy at the Sydney show? Because I want to see that. And the promoters from the venue hit me up. They go, mate, take that tweet down right now. We have a problem. I'm like, okay, fine. What's wrong? They go, our security killed somebody in the club two weeks before by stomping him to death. And we got a lot of cops on us right now. The last thing we need is more attention for this. Take it down right now. And they were like mafia from Sydney, Lebanese mafia motherfuckers. So I took that shit down the tweet. I never got to see any footage because there was people with their cameras out and shit. And that was my Sydney, Australia Dude, story. Fucking wild yeah. fans. Yeah, that. But that was the. I'm surprised that hasn't happened more because 600 people. There's gonna be one asshole. Right. You know, I get shit thrown at me now and then. Like I can handle that. But someone jumped on stage and punched me in the fucking face, and it was the best thing that could have happened. Because looking back, if I was to plan it, I'd be like, okay, I'm gonna get on stage. You're gonna jump on stage and grab the mic. You're gonna yell Australia, punch me. I'm gonna roll with the punch, and then I'm gonna beat you up in front of everyone. Everybody. Like it went perfect. Even when he punched me, like the mic made like that feedback noise. It was like, mm -hmm. like it was comedically perfect. 
And it was just so awesome. And like, I didn't even care that I got punched. I remember going home and I slept so good because I was obviously tired from flying and being up all day. But I remember like, it was such this weird primal, like it felt good just to fucking punch somebody, man. It all builds up in you. And it was warranted. Like I was allowed to punch a guy, you know, he started it. He punched me in the fucking face. I just defended myself. You know, I'm not a tough guy fighter at all, but it felt good. Fuck, just like hunting felt good. It was like this primal thing that I never get to tap into. That was like, oh, that was therapeutic. Right. You know? That's a wild story, man. I know, man. It was rad. The guy, it was perfect. And I didn't get hurt. He didn't really get hurt. Like, he was fine. Like, I just, he was just some drunk dude. And it was fucking amazing. And then I fly the next day to Adelaide. And I get off the plane. And there's some huge buff dude in a suit with a mohawk waiting for me. And he's like, Simon? I'm like, yeah. I'm like, what's going on? He's like, we're your security. We hear you're, you know, we hear you're a real problem, troublemaker. And I'm like, are you serious? Is this a joke? They're like, no, you got security for the rest of the tour in every city because we heard you like to beat up your fans. It had gotten in the newspaper, Dirt Nasty beats up fan at show. It was like the best press you could ever ask for. And it was- you frame that. Yeah, I, you know what? It was like, on, my buddy Chucky has it. And it was like the best press ever. And then everyone's coming out to the show going, oh, Dirt Nasty beats up his fans. And it was like, this, this never happens. Right. But it was like the best press it was the first show of the tour the rest of the tour was a success everyone's reading about it like oh i gotta see this yeah and it was just all <laughs> fucking I, great is that i'll let you go soon but i i'm so curious about what we don't see like at, you're at a concert yeah. you have all you have a lot of energy coming at yeah, you yeah it is a lot and a lot of fucking assholes a lot of too. assholes yeah the people that come to a dirt nasty show are usually and, and uh, i don't mean this in a bad way they're great fans but, but they're rowdy ram- rambunctious mother, yeah rambunctious is a how good do word. you handle that energy like what do we not see well <clears throat> like what goes on behind the scenes what because you've been doing it for a while so you've learned how to manage that uh like hurricane it's you know almost what you like do it, is you don't let them in too much you got to keep them at a certain distance like when i'm on stage with them is one thing but like after the show if they want to go party and hang out after you could never do that like too short taught me this uh name drop too short taught me like don't even smoke a joint with your fans because by that time that joint goes around twice they're going to want your phone number they're going to want the, like it's too close so he's like i go on i got a show i walk backstage five minutes before I go on and as soon as I'm done I'm back at the hotel I'm not hanging out with bitches I'm not hanging out with my fans it's just gonna be bad news and he's right he usually does like you don't I remember the couple times like me and Mickey Avalon brought like some people back to our hotel room in Detroit or something we were just watching like a Hitler special on the History Channel because we're fascinated with that shit and so we're not supportive just fascinated and uh, we're both Jewish and (laughs) we're watching it and like the fans are like wanting to party in the room and we're like shh wait wait guys they're talking about you know, the, you know, the, you know, the Third Reich or whatever the fuck it is, and they're looking at each other like this is not the guys that we want to hang out with after the show. So we realized real quick like, let's not crush our fans' dreams about what really goes on after the show because this <laughs> right. is what we're really doing. Right. We're not doing blowing fucking hookers like we say we are on stage. It's all a joke. Uh, so yeah, usually you just keep them. You don't you don't hang out with your fans too much. You you're never gonna win that one. You know what I mean? Right. It's gonna end up bad before it ends up good. Yeah. Nothing good's gonna come out of that. Yeah, and then but you're you're needing to deal with that and also being this really open, curious person. Right. Exactly. Right? Because so I'm like a nice this, guy. Who's yeah, you're not very gonna, nice. So I'm gonna like engage and be cool. And if someone's gonna talk, I'm gonna be like, oh yeah. yeah. And I'm not gonna just be a dick. Sometimes I'm, if it's if I'm really forced to be, I can be, but it takes a lot, you know. But. Um, yeah, curious is a good word to describe me. I'm like a monkey, you know? We're all monkeys, you know? Curious George. That's it, man. 
Simon Says, Curious That's Simon. That's it. Dude, what, what do you think is a good name for the podcast? I'm starting mine. Uh, Chris likes Nervous Rex. Or Six Degrees of Simon Rex is what Theo recommended because I kind of know everyone. Six Degrees of Simon Rex. Um, Simon Says is a little too easy if you ask me. I'll show you the list because Nervous Rex. I like Nervous up. Rex. Yeah, because my energy is Chris yeah. is really good at that kind of stuff too. Yeah, that was the one he wrote that about, jumped out. He wrote through. a book called Sex at Dawn and then Civilized to Death, yeah, which are names. both really yeah. good. Yeah, guy really good. He came up with the idea for the Motherfucker Awards too. He did. Or the, the title. Um, so. it's, a, it's a great fucking yeah. name. Yeah, I haven't uh, talked about that yet, but more to come yeah, yeah. on that. I'll let you fill them in on that one. Yeah. But uh, Dude, thank yeah, you so dude, much. Thank you, bro. It was awesome, man. It's about time. We've been talking yes. about this for a long time. Yes. But this this was, I remember we were going to do it in Burning Man. We were like, let's do a podcast. I'm like, you know, remember, I lost our minds, voice. Our minds were mush. I lost my yeah. voice. <laughs> and I was like, dude, it's a sign. We'll do it when we get back to LA. So here we are. This feels better because now we, and I was even saying, I was like, and we could recap Burning Man. We didn't even go too deep into it, but. You know, we'll do another yeah, app like, another time. You're like, it's so metaphorical. I lost my voice. And I've just been thinking, like, I need to shut the fuck up more, man. And now this is the universe telling me that I need to shut the fuck and up. And it was on the heels of me putting out a video the day before that was like a viral video that this big YouTube star d I did with making fun of Burning Man. It's called Burning Man Couple. If you're out there and you want to see me pre-Burning Man make fun of it and be so wrong about it, you can see that. And then if, if you look in the comments, I apologized. It's in the comment section under the video, which has like millions of views and I'm going okay I made this video before I went to Burning Man I apologize to all burners I was wrong how humbled I am and I did like a little formal <laughs> apology oh man and you know it's actually Burning Man Venice this weekend right now there's a Burning Man event going on at the beach maybe we should go check it out let's do it okay let's go that's our show I'm gonna play you out the song called 1980 by none other than Dirt Nasty himself once again, this is an ad-free podcast, so if you want to buy me the equivalent of a cup of coffee every month, you can click the link below this episode where I wrote Buy Me a Cup of Coffee on Patreon. You can also head over to my website, kyle.surf. That's where you can check out my book club, my email list, my documentaries, articles, all kinds of good stuff over at kyle.surf. And finally, if you want to send me a voice memo, you can email it to info at kyle.surf. Record it on your phone. Try and keep it under a minute. With that, my friends, I will see you next week. Get out in the water if you can today, whatever body of water is closest to you, whether that is a river in Minnesota, whether that is the Pacific Ocean in Southern California, or whether that is a neighbor's hot tub that you can go sneak into right now. Much love, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye. What happened to your queer party, friends? I got a gold chain. I'm on cocaine. I'm like, yo, man. What, 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 what? I rolled in straight from Oakland, holding my dick like a U.S. Open trophy. What up to hyphen? Y'all don't know me. Dirt nasty, ass cheeks, spread wide. G-string to the side. One drink, Cavassier. Two drink, vodka straight Three drink, I'm in the sink Throwing up on my brand new mint coat And I'm doing coke Y'all can't hold my donkey road no. Call the Pope, pray for me Go Rolls Royce with your lady I lived through the 80s And shit was crazy Everybody wanna know my name Bring the pain and pop the champagne Every girl wanna hold my chain When I fuck their brains out on the mic I got a gold chain
girl to stop paging me. Stoned as hell, white lines, gold gazelles, hotel on sunset, young hoes get undressed, done dick ain't done yet, insert the clip and get the gun wet, enough said I'm radical, t-shirt say party animal, I ain't no amateur, this ain't no hands across America, I shine like Morrissey on Hennessy on Christmas Eve, no, not more like Morris Day on Hella Yang, dressing gay, I live through the 80s, and shit was crazy Everybody wanna know my name Bring the what? pain and what? pop the champagne what? Every girl wanna hold my chain When I fuck their brains out what? on the mic I got a gold chain